When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm honored to welcome Susanna Heschel to the show today to talk about her incisive book, The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany. Susanna Heschel is the Eli Black Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College She's the author of Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus and the editor of Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, Essays of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Susanna Heschel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you. I like to start by asking my guests to reflect for a moment on their early life and the important influences on their intellectual development. Tell us about yours. I'm happy to. I would say, first of all, that since we're considering the book that I wrote about the Nazi period, um, the root is clearly in my childhood. My father was a professor and a refugee from Nazi Europe, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and my parents' friends tended to all be refugee scholars as well. Most had studied at some point at a university in Germany, uh, whether they were born in Poland or Germany or anywhere else in Europe, Hungary. And they sat at the table, and I would say that the most frequently discussed book was the book by Max Weinreich, Hitler's Professors. They talked about professors they had worked with who had become Nazis. They spoke with horror about that. And, of course, Weinreich's book was one of the earliest. It came out in 1946. It was drawn from archives that were available at the YIVO Institute in New York City. And he spoke in that book with detail about the Nazi activities of professors in several fields. It was not, of course, complete. Uh, Further studies have been written about uh, all the fields of German university studies, all the disciplines and the involvement of each in one way or another in Nazism, whether it was physics, and I'm thinking of Alan Beiersch's book, uh, about scientists under physicists under Hitler, uh, or medicine, but also in the humanities. So that stayed with me. Uh, I would say the next step was that I wrote a book about Abraham Geiger, whom I consider to be one of the most interesting, uh, original, and brilliant figures in modern Jewish thought, and certainly a leader of the Wissenschaft des Judentums, historical study of Judaism in Germany in the 19th century. 
his work I discovered was actually widely read by Christian scholars and discussed. He wrote a book about his first book about the Quran and Jewish influences, parallels between Quranic passages and rabbinic literature. And then he went on to talk about Second Temple Judaism in a very important book published in 1857. Uh, and then drawing from his study of the Second Temple era, he wrote a very original work about the New Testament and the origins of Christianity. Uh, and then came my question, which was, so the reception of his work uh, was widespread. He was very well known. But what did Christian scholars, that is, professors at universities, think of his work? And that's, of course, where I found the problems. Uh, he was criticized heavily and dismissed because he was a Jew. That is, his substantive arguments were not taken seriously and discussed in a manner appropriate to academic analysis. Um, but I was also interested in his claim that Jesus was a Jew and a rabbi, a Pharisee, a liberalizer of Judaism, he argued. What happened to that argument in subsequent generations? And one day I was at the Institute for the Study of Antisemitism in Berlin at the Technical University, which at the time was run by Herbert Strauss, himself a refugee scholar. And browsing in the library, I found some publications by quite prominent German theologians from 1942. And I wondered, well, what were they writing in the middle of the war, in the year when the most number of Jews were murdered by Nazis? And I started reading, and I found that what they were doing was simply uh, producing anti-Semitic propaganda under the guise of Protestant theology. I noticed that their publications came from something called an institute for the study of Judaism, <clears throat> of their rather Jewish influence on German religious life. What was that institute, I wondered? And I asked several scholars in Germany, prominent figures who work on the Nazi period and theologians and the churches, and they all said, oh, that was nothing. And there's no information available. All the archives are lost. You won't find anything. Don't bother pursuing that topic. But I did bother. And while I was still finishing my book on Abraham Geiger, I started exploring some German archives. And I went to Thuringia, which is at the geographic center uh, in the former East Germany. And I went to the church archives in Eisenach. I was the first American who had ever shown up there. Certainly the first Jew the archivist had ever met. And I had the first laptop computer he had ever seen. But he told me there was really nothing, one or two documents, that's all. I didn't quite believe him. And I went back a year later. And he gave me a few more documents. And a year later, he gave me more until finally, it turns out, he had everything. I also traveled throughout Germany to archives in the north, from Kiel, university archives, um, city archives, state archives, so public and private archives. Uh, and I found a tremendous amount of material everywhere I went. So it turns out this was a Protestant church-sponsored institute to produce anti-Semitic propaganda. It had uh, members who were professors of theology at universities in Germany and who were bishops and pastors and so forth. And here they were producing anti-Semitic propaganda during the Third Reich. So that leads me back to the question posed by Max Weinreich. What, what kind of involvement do we see uh, of professors with Nazi ideology? And I became interested in the field of 
Protestant theology, which was a very important and highly respected field at German universities. So that's how my book came into being. And it's particularly timely that we're talking about it today, since tomorrow, January 27th, is uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So uh, it's, it's the right time to be talking about your book. Uh, you write that uh, calls to de-Judaize Christianity began back in the 19th century, and that Christian leaders were the first to speak and write about killing Jews. Uh, tell us about that shocking and, as far as I know, seldom recognized fact. When did it occur and in what context? Well, you see, that's that's why I believe it's very important when we write the history of, let's say, Protestant theological developments in Germany in the 19th century to pay attention to what Jewish scholars were saying. Geiger wasn't the only Jewish scholar publishing work about early Judaism, that is Judaism and antiquity, and its relationship to the origins of Christianity and Islam for that matter. So to write the history of Protestant theology and ignore the Jewish contributions, and I would add severe criticisms, is really to give a partial history. So my argument is that these Protestant theologians began their quest for the historical Jesus, as we know, in the late 18th century. It's usually Herman Samuel Rimaris who's credited with launching that quest with the desire to find the historical figure of Jesus. Who was he? And especially, what was his faith? So the idea was to get away from the miracles and the dogma and instead have the faith of Jesus rather than the religion about Jesus. So what was the faith of Jesus? Well, if you want to understand the historical figure of Jesus, of course, he goes into a historical context, which is first century Palestine. And it's a Jewish context as well as, of course, a Roman context. And then we have to look at what Jesus said, if we're interested in his actual teachings, and compare them with the other teachings of his day. So what Geiger did was to argue that Jesus actually said what other rabbis were saying in his day, Hillel, of course, but plenty of others. And he found his argument was that Jesus didn't say anything new or original, but that he was a liberal progressive rabbi. <clears throat> and Geiger identified the Pharisees as the liberal progressive figures of the day trying to make Judaism democratic, whereas the priests tried to preserve their privileges and aristocratic bearings of the temple. And so Geiger saw a conflict between those two groups as constituting the Second Temple era, and Jesus was on the side of the Pharisees. Now, this, of course, raises an interesting question about the uh, some of the negative passages in the New Testament regarding the Pharisees, such as Matthew 23, where Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, Pharisees. And Geiger had an explanation for that, and I'll come to that in a moment. But my point is simply that in arguing that Jesus said nothing new or original, that he was a liberal Pharisee, that he was a rabbi, that he was a Jewish thinker who was part of an exemplar of Jewish thinking of his day. This was a problem for Christian theologians. What was unique about Jesus in that case? Why was a religion built around the faith of Jesus if the faith of Jesus was shared by so many other Jews of his day? 
And that problem and the, uh, let's say, the insolubility of that problem led Christian theologians to then turn to racial theory toward the end of the 19th century. If they couldn't establish something unique about Jesus's teachings, then at least they could say that racially he was different from the Jews. They made that argument with all kinds of spurious claims about the Galilee, for example, that there was another village called Bethlehem in the Galilee. The Galilee was filled not with racial Jews, but with Aryans who had moved into the region of the Galilee after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BCE. And these Aryans who came from Iran, they mostly argued, or from India, these Aryans had been forcibly converted to Judaism by the Hasmoneans, but racially they still remain Aryan. And then they say that's why Jesus was well-received in the Galilee and not well-received in Jewish Judea where he was murdered, and of course they said by the Jews. So this was their argument, but my point is that they were responding in a very defensive way to the claims made by Jewish scholars to contextualize Jesus and demonstrate that he was not a singular, unique figure who said something new, but was speaking the Judaism of his day. So in, in that sense, you can see that somehow Christian theologians were scrambling to find a unique Jesus. And they used racial theory because racial theory at the time was viewed as something sophisticated and modern. And it seemed to, to use racial theory to describe the figure of Jesus would be to make Christianity and Christian theology seem more sophisticated. And now, and this in was addition, the racial, uh, racialism uh, that was just coming up at the end of the 19th century. Yes, racial theory was growing in the late 19th century and was being supported by a lot of scholars at universities in various disciplines. They thought racial theory would explain everything. Now, of course, in the context of Germany, uh, racial theory meant that German, German Aryans were the superior race, white race, and everybody else was inferior, and they had a variety of um, uh, ways of determining this. Uh, it really wasn't so much about the body. Of course, skin color mattered, and they talked about the nose and the skull and hair and all kinds of things like that, Africans, Asians, and especially Jews, also Slavs. But more than that, what I found was that these racial theorists uh, talked a lot about the moral and spiritual degeneracy of Jews, Africans, Asians, Slavs. But Jews, of course, were the ones who were present in Germany. Not very present because Jews constituted less than 1% of the German population. Although there were also Jews coming in from Eastern Europe, especially into Berlin, into urban areas. But that's another story. But the point is that Germany also united itself as a nation uh, in 1871, and needed to find a national identity. And the identity that was formed was developed over and against Jews and what Jews in their minds represented. So the problem is this, and as I see it, Jews were considered morally and spiritually degenerate and posed a danger of degeneracy 
to Germany, to all Germans. And the question of the body was really secondary. That is, the body of the Jew held this spiritual and moral degeneracy. But it wasn't so much that the nose, the Jewish nose, is going to jump off and attack an Aryan. It was more, the way it was presented was, we have to, to keep our moral purity by protecting ourselves against the Jews who are contaminating it. And of course, what's interesting about that, and with much of the racism we study, is that Aryans also were understanding themselves as vulnerable. They were the superior, powerful race, but also vulnerable to the so-called degeneracy of Jews. So the question of, of racism and anti-Semitism in Germany is complicated. It's not just about the body in itself. It is, I believe, a kind of secularized form of Christian incarnational theology, just as Jesus is supposed to be God incarnate in the body of a human man. So to racial theorists, understand this moral and spiritual degeneracy as incarnate in the body of the Jew. It can't be separated. The only way to get rid of the moral impurity and degeneracy and danger of the Jew is to kill the Jewish body. So that's the kind of anti-Semitism that was floating around. And of course, it affected really every discipline at the German university. And for the theologians, it was in some sense a gift Anti-Semitism was a gift to the theologians because if you wanted to take a class and learn anything about Judaism at a German university, where there was no such thing, of course, as Jewish studies, where would you learn something about Judaism? You would learn it in the faculty of Protestant theology primarily, in usually in the courses, a New Testament, where, of course, early Judaism would have to be discussed, what they called, of course, late Judaism. So they talked about Judaism and explained Jesus in relation to Judaism, but always is a kind of a seesaw. That is, Jesus was elevated by demonstrating how degenerate first century Judaism was. And what was the evidence? Well, the Jews didn't believe he was the Messiah. And that was explained, not that Jesus actually wasn't the Messiah and didn't fulfill the conditions of the Messiah, but rather they said the Jews were so degenerate, so spiritually blind, that they were incapable of realizing that their own Messiah had arrived, which is, of course, a circular argument. But in other words, New Testament scholarship could participate in this kind of anti-Semitic um, verbiage <laughs> with their own kinds of arguments. And that made the field of theology particularly receptive to racial theory and to make a, an important contribution to it. And once they were using race, it no longer mattered, I guess, that the old idea of Christianity as a race was defined them as Aryans in the original sense, which is people from India or Iran, who not, not blonde, blue-eyed German Nordic uh, stereotype. But you uh, go into a very deep examination of one uh, school of the Institute of Theology, the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence on German Church Life uh, that was established in 1939. 
under the direction of a longtime Nazi supporter and racist, uh, Walter Grunmann. What, uh, what was the mission and goal of this particular institute? Well, um, yes, the separation of this institute in some sense was new and not new at the same time. So just to come back to your earlier question, if, if there is a raging anti-Semitic movement in Germany, especially starting in the 1870s, it continued for some time, then what should a Christian do with a with the divinity, with Jesus, who was a Jew, or with the Old Testament, a Jewish book that most Protestant theologians also denigrated, by the way. And so suggestions were made already in the 19th century that maybe Jesus wasn't a Jew after all, and that maybe Christians should throw the Hebrew Bible out of the Christian Bible uh, because it was Jewish. Now, these arguments, I have to emphasize, did not just come from, um, you know, crackpots and demagogues. They also came from serious scholars. I was surprised that it was 1905, Paul Haupt, who was a very famous Assyriologist uh, who moved from Germany to Johns Hopkins University and was internationally renowned as a scholar, that he too gave a serious lecture that Jesus was an Aryan. I couldn't believe it. So these were serious people saying crazy things, but they were crazy for a while until finally when Hitler came to power, actually they turned these Protestant theologians, decided to turn these suggestions into a reality. So calls came for eliminating the Old Testament from the Christian Bible, and they did so. They stopped reading in church from the Old Testament. They stopped presenting, for example, presenting the Old Testament as a gift uh, to couples when they celebrated a wedding anniversary in the church, things like that. And the Institute itself wanted to do something to become important in the Third Reich. And different fields could make contributions, but what could theologians do for Hitler? They wanted to be important people. And I suppose we all want to be important in some way. They wanted to be important Nazis. And what did they do? They realized, especially after the Kristallnacht, the pogrom against German Jews and, and synagogues and Jewish property in November 9th, 1938, they realized that they could make a contribution to anti-Semitic propaganda. And they decided to institutionalize what they were doing and so they formed in 1939, they formed this institute that would de-Judaize Christianity, eradicate Jewish influence on the German religious level. They said, for example, once the war broke out, we're fighting a military battle and also a spiritual battle. And we theologians are contributing to that latter battlefield. So this institute, first of all, took um, a group, a committee, formed a committee of New Testament scholars who rewrote the Bible. So they got rid of the Old Testament altogether, but they rewrote the Gospels because, of course, there was a problem. Jesus shouldn't be a, a meek, kind, gentle figure calling for peace during World War II or even earlier during the Third Reich. And so they revised the image of Jesus. They removed everything Jewish from the Gospels. Uh, except negative teachings about Jews. They had a problem with Paul. 
Jesus could be claimed as an Aryan born in the Galilee of racially Aryan parents. But Paul says very clearly in his letters that he was Jewish. He was a Pharisee and zealous unto the law, he tells us. And of course, Martin Luther was a great admirer of Paul and wrote important commentaries on Paul. So they couldn't quite eliminate everything by Paul from the New Testament. Instead, what they did was to eliminate all the autobiographical sections and take some of Paul's letters, passages from Paul's letters, kind of mix them around a bit and add to that mixture passages from the Gospel of John. Because John's Gospel, it was felt, was the most anti-Jewish of all the Gospels. And John was in some sense elevated as almost a substitute for Paul, as a theological foundation for Christianity. Hmm. They also had a hymnal, of course, in Germany. The hymnal was also revised by a committee of theology professors. They removed all Hebrew words, such as hallelujah, for example. Uh, they also removed all hymns that might have been written, either the, the words or the music, by someone who was born a Jew and had converted to Christianity, because conversion, even baptism, was not acceptable. Right. So, uh, And then they produced anti-Semitic writings. Some of them, one might say, quote-unquote, scholarly, and others were popular. Uh, pamphlets and such. It's remarkable to me that this institute flourished until the end of the war, pretty much, uh, and managed to publish so much because there was a paper shortage during the war. A lot of other disciplines and universities didn't have the kind of funding and, and popularity of this institute. Uh, they really were quite powerful compared to others. And that's remarkable you know, the physicists, there were several who called for an Aryan physics, change the whole discipline of physics, whatever that means, Aryan physics, that's what Alan Byershin wrote about. But, you know, there were only a few of them. They were viewed as marginal crackpots. But the theologians involved came from universities all over Germany. They had a lot of power, and there were a lot of them. By 1935, 36, if you were appointed a professor of theology at a German university, you were a Nazi because these pro-Hitler theologians had taken control of the theological faculties at the German universities. Now, And this was is, there any resistance? What was the mainstream was, uh, Christian leadership's response to these radical changes in text, in hymns yes. and services. Was there outrage? Any opposition within the church? Yes, there was opposition. There were those who formed in, in 1934 something that came to be called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was not opposed to Hitler. The Confessing Church was opposed to changing Christianity to bring it in accord with Nazi principles. For the Confessing Church, the Bible is the Bible. You don't touch it. You don't rewrite the Bible. Now, they also felt that if you've been baptized, you are a Christian. If you haven't been baptized, you're a Jew, and that's your problem. But they did help baptize Jews. Now, the Catholic Church also was opposed to these kinds of changes. There are doctrines, uh, and there's um, authority. You can't rewrite the Bible. So it was very similar a more conservative theological approach. 
What characterizes these Nazi theologians, who called themselves, by the way, German Christians, a uh, sufficiently vague title, but these, these German Christians who supported Hitler, the most important thing for them was um, the freedom that came from liberal theology, from the idea that we don't want miracles and doctrines, that we are able to reconstruct the historical Jesus, and we're able to amend the text, to change the text of the Bible when we need to. They claimed, of course, that they were restoring the Bible, not rewriting it, restoring it to its original Aryan intention. Now, well, you, you know, when you say a phrase like uh, German Christians, it sounds uncomfortably similar to today's Christian nationalism. Would you say that there is a relationship between the Nazi era's Protestant theology and today's uh, Christian nationalism's theology? Definitely. There's definitely a connection. Using Christianity for nationalism uh, is something that we're familiar with in the United States as well. Um, after we know the Ku Klux Klan saw Jesus as their, their sort of mascot, white Jesus. Uh, we also know that there were efforts to change, or let's say to lift up a white Christian European Aryan Jesus as part of European imperialism. Uh, when Christian missionaries went to India, Africa, China, etc., they went with a white Jesus. And that, of course, arose some discomfort uh, among many people, it does to this day. Um, they didn't, though, promote him as a Jewish Jesus. The question of Jesus's ethnic identity, uh, it, it just is it, so clear. He was a Jew, that we know. Uh, to claim that he wasn't is absurd, and no serious scholar can take that uh, into account and take that seriously, such claims. But it can be politicized, as you point out, and certainly today it is being politicized, and it is a problem. When uh, President Trump held up a Bible in front of a church during a demonstration, the message was clear. And sometimes, you know, <laughs> sometimes the language is quite explicit, and sometimes it's, let's say, suggestive, what people like to call a dog whistle. And um, you mentioned at the outset of this discussion, this conversation, um, calling for the murder of Jews early on from theologians. And that's something I discovered that really shocked me. In February 1936, there was a small meeting of a few theologians in Dresden. And I found the archive of the uh, the transcript of this meeting. Somebody sat down and wrote down everything that was said. And one comment that was made by a, uh, a minister from Thuringia, a member of this institute, was that, <laughs> I, I, I know that I'm not supposed to commit murder, I know from the Ten Commandments, but uh, when I see a Jew, I have to kill him, and I say Christ. So it's a it's a, it's that's not a it's in my book it's in the introduction I was shocked by this that that's where February, I learned it <laughs> February 1936 I, no one's yeah. killing Jews at that point there is no idea yet of uh, the so-called final solution of murdering all the Jews uh, and yet this theologian is picking up on something and that's important it tells us something about the mood of the day 
that he felt comfortable saying something like that in front of other theologians. And by the way, the group included Paul Althaus, who is a famous professor of ethics, an ethicist from the University of Erlangen. Now, what also shocked me is that no one said anything. No one responded. No one said, wait a minute, we're not killing anybody. No. He said it. And so it tells us something about the, the mood of that moment and also the, which I say, the daring of this theologian to speak this way in front of his colleagues. Who would dare say such a thing at a meeting that's being transcribed? He felt perfectly comfortable doing that. So all of these little elements to that uh, document are very important. And and speaking of the mood uh, behind or around the phenomenon, uh, the the Aryan Jesus is not just an academic study of an ugly, terrible historical phenomenon. It it, it deals with a, a very timely issue. Uh, so address the relationship between academic products, both secular and religious, and the general society's propaganda and rhetoric and murderous violence. We see it today. Um, reflect on it for us. Well, there are many, many levels to it. For example, the hymnal that was published and by the way, both the, the Bible and the hymnal and then the catechism were sold hundreds of thousands of copies in the middle of the war to churches throughout the Reich. In the hymnal, for instance, they had illustrations, drawings of soldiers with guns. And that was very popular to militarize Christianity as well as nationalize it, of course. Mm-hmm. But... Um, in the relationship between the professors and, let's say, the pastors, here's where this discipline of theology has a great advantage over disciplines such as, um, I don't know, geology or uh, Russian literature or any other field <laughs> of the university. Professors of theology can transmit their ideas to a very broad public through pastors who give sermons every Sunday. And by the way, in Germany, if you wanted to become a Lutheran pastor, and Protestants were almost all Lutheran, uh, with a little bit of Reformed thrown in occasionally, but to become a Lutheran pastor, you had to first take exams in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And then you went on to study the history of Christianity. People were very well trained. There were no such requirements in any other country, in any other church in the world. No one in England had to pass those kinds of exams or in the United States. It was remarkable. So they knew the field and they knew what was being said. And there were popular transmissions as well. I'll just mention as an example, when I was in, um, in Germany as a, as a graduate student, uh, I discovered that there were feminist theologians who were saying very negative things about Judaism in order to elevate Jesus. Now, I didn't realize at the time what I realize now, which is that these theologians of the 1990s had studied at German universities with people, with professors who had trained during the Nazi era. That Hmm. is what happened in the Nazi era didn't stop in 1945. The professors who were involved in this institute who supported Hitler remained professors after the war. 
and they produced a new generation and they didn't change what they had been saying before 1945 because this younger generation spouted the same ideas. I'll give you one example. There was a book that came out in the 19, early 1990s by a woman named Krista Mulock, in which she said that the Nazis, she, first she gives a description of SS coming to a, a village uh, and rounding up all the Jews and killing them. She gives a very vivid description of something horrific. Then she says, well, you see the Nazis obeyed the commands of Hitler where do we find such a morality of obedience to orders? We find it in Judaism. The Jews obey the commandments of God, just like the Nazis obey the commands of Hitler. And so she says, we see that Nazism is in a sense the triumph of Judaism. It shows us that Christian morality never took hold in the West. So the Holocaust is essentially the the fault of Judaism, wow. she's saying. <laughs> and this was then repeated. It was quoted and repeated by a bestseller in Germany by a, a journalist named Franz Alt. Uh, the book was called Jesus der erste neue Mann, Jesus the first new man. It was a bestseller. And he quoted, he quoted, Krista Bulak says so-and-so, and he quoted it affirming with affirmation that yes, indeed, Judaism is about obeying orders, just like Nazis obeyed orders. First of all, Nazis didn't just obey orders. They didn't have to, they could have, as we know from Christopher Browning's work, the, the Einsatzgruppen, they were said, you, you don't want to kill Jews, go home. And, and 10 to 15% went home. They left Poland and went home. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah. But to, to portray Judaism in that way, where does that come from? That's Nazi thinking. And that's the 1990s. So the, the Nazi um, theology... Um, I learned in your book, uh, it suggested that Hitler was a kind of savior in the line of Martin Luther and Jesus. Uh, what happened to those ideas? Uh, I, I, I get that some of them continued, but uh, the defeated Germany had to do something with that theology. What happened after the war? Well, uh, after the war... Um, we don't hear much about the pro-Hitler theologians. We hear a lot about those in the confessing church. And the confessing church people uh, after the war tried to present themselves as heroes who opposed Hitler. They didn't really oppose Hitler. They opposed changing Christianity into something pro-Nazi. That's what they opposed. Um, but the, the field of church history, first of all, was controlled for a long time by Wilhelm Niemöller and my colleague Robert Erickson and I have written about this. Um, he controlled who was writing what, who had access to what archives. And as I mentioned earlier, it was hard for me to get hold of certain archival documents. Uh, in, in some university archives, I discovered the material had been purged. That is, you could only find when I was at the University of Heidelberg, you'd only find the uh, the files of a couple of professors of theology, but not all of them. Uh, those documents had been removed in order to protect the reputation, presumably, of the of the faculty of theology or the individual theologians. 
So we didn't have the information. And it really was um, Americans who started to talk about this as a problem. Doris Bergen, uh, who was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina under Gerhard Weinberg, a very fine scholar, uh, and who was originally from Canada, Doris. Doris Bergen wrote a book called Twisted Cross, in which she described the activities and the, the claims, the arguments of members of the so-called German Christian movement, that is, people who supported Hitler. And she looked at their newspapers and publications uh, and church bulletins and so forth and wrote a very fine book about it. And Robert Erickson wrote a book called Theologians Under Hitler. And that was actually earlier, 1986 or 87, that book came out. Doris's was 1996. And Erickson looked at three theologians, Paul Althaus, the ethicist I mentioned earlier, and Emanuel Hirsch, who was a very famous uh, systematic theologian in Göttingen, and Gerhard Kittel, who was a New Testament scholar in Tübingen. And I'll just say a word uh, about the complexity of this problem. Gerhard Kittel was the son of Rudolf Kittel, who was a professor of Old Testament in Leipzig. And Gerhard uh, was hired to begin in part because he knew rabbinic literature. He knew those texts. And he worked together with Jewish scholars and rabbis to produce critical editions of the Mishnah and, uh, and the Tosefta. He, he worked, in other words, in the field of rabbinic so Jewish studies. And then all of a sudden, Hitler came to power in January 1933. And in May 1933, Gerhard Kittel published a horrible pamphlet on the Jewish question, in which he said, what should Germany do with these Jews? Should we expel them? Uh, should we murder them? Oh, maybe we should just give them guest status. Should we murder them? Wow. This is a theologian saying, well, you know, it wouldn't be practical to murder them all. It's really quite unbelievable. So, again, that's the field of theology. It's deeply disturbing to see what they were doing and saying. Uh, I, I heard or read that after the war, uh, Germany, uh, German theologians needed to spin things again in a different direction. And uh, there was some attempt to portray the German people as the Israelites leaving Egypt, that they were the refugees, they were innocents uh, in a divine plan for salvation. Is, uh, is that legitimate? Yes. Did that really yes. happen? It's really shocking. And Richard Rubenstein, who was a, a rabbi and scholar in the United States, describes a conversation he had after the war in the 19, early 1960s with Pastor um, Gruber, is it Heinrich Heinz Gruber, who himself had been in prison in Dachau and who had been part of the Confessing Church and had helped baptize Jews in many ways, um, together with a few of his colleagues. And Gruber said to him, you know, we are the, the rod of God's anger. God used us as a tool to punish the Jews for their sins. And that's why Germany today has been bombed out, et cetera, et cetera. And Rubenstein was just shocked, horrified that someone would say this. And I understand why he felt that way. I feel that I, when, when I read Krista Mulak, I was, I was just, I, I, I was shocked how anyone could say such a thing. So, um, yes, after the war, certain German theologians thought of themselves as 
as it is Old Testament Israelites, children of Israel, who were suffering in the wilderness, and and yeah, um, they didn't take but, but responsibility. The, mm-hmm. No, but the the uh, the intense anti-Semitism in especially Lutheran Protestantism really goes back to Martin Luther, doesn't it? Because when yes. we hear contemporary. Uh, celebrities or or people like Louis Farrakhan uh, talking about the powerful Jews who are controlling the media and the and the country. Uh, it it echoes Luther. So in a way, uh, the anti-Semitism, maybe not extreme as in Nazism, it was built in. Although some say that Luther provided the background for Kristallnacht. Is that? Something you agree with? Well, that's too simple. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I find yeah. no. I, I find that far too simplistic. So many other things happen. Also, it's reductionist uh, yes. to say, well, it's just Luther. Um, but of course, Luther, with his idea of um, law gospel, did something very dangerous. He gave a very dangerous way of thinking to uh, to Europe. In general, and you know, let's keep in mind, Jews work very hard to respond to try to overcome these attitudes. Kant also made this claim that Judaism is just a bunch of of legalism, of laws you obey. It's not morality. You're just following orders. And Jews said, "Well, you know, Kant, you misunderstood Judaism, but of course, ethics sets at the center." And so they talked about Judaism as ethical monotheism. They said Judaism right. really fulfills what Kant is saying. Now, what Luther said about law gospel, well, of course, Spinoza then reduced Judaism to to laws that are no longer relevant since we no longer have sovereignty. Um, But it's a very bad understanding of Judaism. Uh, Judaism is not about law versus anything, uh, law versus love or some such binary. It's not. It's exactly the opposite. Judaism is about let's say a mitzvah is a prayer in the form of a deed. Judaism is about prayer. It's about being in the presence of God at all times. And to do something, to say something, to pray, one can pray through an act of kindness. One can pray in a demonstration. My father went to Selma to march for voting rights for black Americans. And he came back and he said, I felt my legs were praying. That's Judaism. That's doing a good deed for another human being is itself a prayer. And it says in one of the Psalms, I am prayer. And I think in a way that's what it is to be a Jew, to live your life so that your life becomes a prayer. So this is a total um, deformation, misunderstanding, terrible uh, of Judaism on the part of these Christian thinkers including Luther and so many others as well. So we have an important job to do, I say, uh, as <laughs> Jews, as Christians, to understand one another's faith. But perhaps... Yeah, we, um, we have some work to do on that. Uh, yes. We, we've had uh, several guests on this show whose research and experience uh, demonstrate the growing anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in academia. Uh, Do you think that now, as partly back then, scholars are merely bending to the political winds, or that they are indeed 
as hostile to Jews as they appear, as some of the scholars you studied were? Well, um, I think it's always important to put things in historical context. So, uh, for example, to say that uh, Jesus was an Aryan in the 19th century sounded a little bizarre, uh, wrong, stupid, um, and bizarre. But to say it when Jews are being murdered has a very different connotation. To say it during the Third Reich, even before the war started, to claim that Jesus was an Aryan was a political statement with a heavy-duty meaning to it. It was an anti-Semitic statement in a very heavy way. It was saying Jews are not part of Germany, Jews are not real people, they're not part of the holiness, they're not inclusive, and and so on, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the context? Today, we're living in an era of terrible anger, resentment, uh, and um, violence. And to to speak against Jews in this atmosphere is very frightening because this kind of uh, hostile language can too easily spark violence. But I also have to say that this is a kind of uh, era of rage uh, that is directed not only against Jews, but against many other people, which to my mind makes it even worse. It makes the anti-Semitism worse when the anger is so widespread and directed in so many different directions and many people. It's not only Jews who are targeted. So I feel more insecure when that happens. It makes it, for one thing, um, it makes the violence feel much more um, dangerous and, um, oh, it gives me the feeling that a, a little spark can set up a fire very easily. Um, yes, it's very incendiary, right. Yes, the, and, the, and the anger, the rage, there's so much anger. And beyond that, I would say that, yes, this is coming from both the left and the right. There is hostility, infighting, hatred, but not a sense of goals, of purpose, of transcendence. Uh, I just see constant, um, um, constant anger. And in some sense also, I would say, we're living in um, what feels to me like a culture of sadism, it's sadistic when people attack one another in such a vicious fashion or what's called cancel culture or try to regulate what other people say. And if you say the wrong thing, the rage that comes down, the cruelty, the way a person can be simply thrown out of polite society, that's sadistic. We all make mistakes uh, and that needs to be also considered. Where's the human being? Everything is very ideological, but where's the human being? So um, uh, I think it is a very dangerous period. I also think that we have to be attentive not only to what is said, but to the mood, to the, the kind of mood that's created and the kind of tone of voice in which something is said. Just one of the things that I find troubling about scholarship on anti-Semitism. There's a lot of attention paid to what is said about Jews, but we also need to consider the tone of voice. We also need to consider what, in fact, scholars of anti-Black racism think about, which is 
not only what is said, but the trauma that it inflicts on black people. We don't think enough about the trauma of antisemitism for Jews. And that's important. That's, it's an important issue. That's a very issue. good point. Yeah. We, we are seeing a, a little bit of it in uh, universities on undergraduate Jewish students, undergraduate students who are talking about feeling anxious, feeling uneasy, not having a safe space, and uh, maybe not wanting to be on campus because uh, yes and that but that uh, yes and that and the trauma that results from anti-semitism needs to be included in our scholarship on anti-semitism in part also because someone who is viciously racist wants to inflict trauma and so the trauma that's inflicted also becomes a motivation to continue with the anti-semitism And that's important for us to recognize. That's part of the motivation, the sadism of it, what it does to the other people. When you hurt someone and you see that the person is hurt, a sadistic person will then say, ah, I'm gratified by this. I'll do it again. And And the failure of institutions to push back, to respond appropriately. Yes, but we have to try to understand why people enjoy being racist and anti-Semitic? Why do they have gratification from hurting and traumatizing other people? And that's not something we fully understand. What is that about? Why, why is it so gratifying to certain people to be cruel to others? Um, and how that, of course, develops as a widespread movement is what's important to historians, to see that happen. So that's something that's a, that I explored in an very article deep. I, I published in uh, the Israeli journal, Tzion, a couple of years ago. There was a special issue on anti-Semitism. And I said, mm-hmm. there's much we as scholars of anti-Semitism that we can learn from scholars of anti-Black racism who think about these issues. And I'll just mention one example. Saidia Hartman, who's a professor at Columbia University, has looked at the enslavement of Black people in the United States in the 19th century and pointed out that it's not in addition to being tortured, to being whipped, the whip became internalized. That is, it's also the fear of being whipped, the trauma that comes, that one internalizes, the fear, the anxiety. What does that do to a person? So what a, what a, what a vicious anti-Semite did to Jews was also to instill not only physical harm, but the psychological trauma. And that's something we need to to think more about. You don't have to harm someone only physically. You can do tremendous damage emotionally and And spiritually. And that's where the theologians come in. They were doing more and more. We recognize that it's intergenerational. I mean, the fact that we are here today having the conversation about it is not unrelated to what happened 78 years ago. Uh, Yes, of course, we carry this with us uh, on on a personal level and also on a larger political scale and cultural level. Right, absolutely. Maybe... um, and maybe this is a, a, a moment to mention that it is for that reason important for us to think about what the theologians were preaching 
in churches during the Third Reich. We have social historical studies that tell us so much about what was going on in Nazi Germany, but they often, in fact, I would say usually, don't say a word about what people heard on Sundays when they went to church, what they heard from the pastor. Uh, that's important for us to hear about and to take into consideration. There was, by the way, one archive that I found uh, of a group of students of theology who went through the rural areas of Thuringia to farms to talk to people about Christianity. So they were trying in some way to, I don't know, missionize to, you know, as Christians to Christians to uh, infuse greater faith. And what they found was that a lot of people, they reported this, a lot of people said to them, the Bible is over. It's irrelevant. Our new Bible is Mein Kampf. Ooh, That's very wow. striking. Yes. Wow, yeah. Yes. And so then again, we, we get a sense of the mood, the atmosphere of the era. Those are small but tremendously revealing moments, just like that February 1936 meeting in Dresden. But maybe we should come back for a moment to the 19th century and to this great, wonderful scholar named Abraham Geiger, whom I wrote a book about, <laughs> who made the argument that Jesus was a good Jew, a rabbi, a Pharisee, a liberalizer, progressive, you know, not on everything he said. He was like Hillel, but Jesus was more conservative when it came to divorce. But nonetheless, nothing really new, nothing original, fine. <laughs> But then the question was, well, how come in the New Testament Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees if he himself was a Pharisee? And that's where Geiger gets, I think, <laughs> uh, interesting and fun, let's say. So Geiger said, you know, in the Second Temple period, we had the priests in the temple in Jerusalem and then the Pharisees who were teaching and interpreting the Bible. But what happens when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 CE. What happened to the, to the Sadducees, to the priests? What did they do? They were, you know, out of a job, so to speak. Well, he said, the Sadducees had a choice. Either they could join the Pharisees, who were now the dominant, you know, the rabbis writing the Mishnah, the Talmud, or they could join this new Christian movement. So Geiger argues that some of the Pharisees, excuse me, some of the Sadducees, some of these priests who are now without a temple, joined the Christian movement and brought with them images of priesthood and temple that we see, for example, in Epistle to the Hebrews, mm -hmm. and sure. also brought with them their old rivalry and even antagonism toward the Pharisees. And that's why we have passages such as Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's the Sadducees talking. So the New Testament, in this sense, for Geiger, becomes an all-encompassing Jewish book that tells us something about inner Jewish developments. But then, then finally comes the question, if Christians want the faith of Jesus rather than the religion about Jesus, that is the faith of Jesus, his subjectivity, his Jewish element, no miracles, no, no supernatural, no dogma, and so on. Where would they find it today? So what Geiger really suggests, he doesn't spell it out 
too bluntly, but he suggests what he implies is that if the faith of Jesus was liberal, pharisaic Judaism, the liberal rabbis, the Hillel of the time, where could he find, where could a Christian find that faith today? Not in the church with all of its doctrines and miracles, but rather, Geiger says, you can find it in Reform Judaism, which is not trying to break with rabbinic Judaism, but rather trying to recapture the liberal tendencies of first century Pharisees such as Hillel, to liberalize, democratize, make Judaism more progressive, go back to the original, because that original liberal Pharisaic religion became stultified through the centuries later on because of Christian persecution of Jews. Jews had to be, as Geiger says, Jews were ghettoized, they were uh, forced to live in very narrow circumstances. They didn't have the kind of freedom that's needed for a religion to develop. And so what Geiger is suggesting is if you want to be a, a real Christian and have the faith of Jesus, you should become a reformed Jew. <laughs> That's kind of supersessionism <laughs> in reverse. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's, you know, it's a very clever yeah. and witty uh, yes. response and, and yeah. argument. And I appreciate it for that reason. I, I think yes. it's, um, it's charming. It's clever. It is. Uh, it, and it, it, it makes is. me wish I could have known him. Yeah, it's a little little revenge of the Jews, huh? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Look, fi finally, Susanna, how has your book been received in Christian quarters? What what has or what do you hope its impact will be? What has it been? Well, uh, there was a lot of hostility in Germany. Uh, I would say I, initially, and yeah. Uh, you know, I found actually, let me to go back when I published my book on Abraham Geiger and I lectured about him in Germany, I discovered that even Christian theologians in Germany who were very, very committed to Jewish Christian dialogue had no idea that there were great Jewish scholars in Germany, such as Abraham Geiger or Heinrich Gretz, um, Leo Beck, and so on. They didn't know about them. They had no idea. And that I found disturbing. Uh, personally, it was hurtful that they didn't know these things. Um, but then uh, I've, and, and I wish, I wish they did know because I felt that they were in a sense, how do you say reinventing the wheel? That is, if they knew Geiger, they wouldn't have kept repeating some of the same things that the Protestants were saying against Geiger in the 19th century. They could be able to move forward a little. But anyway, when the Arian Jesus book was published, there was a lot of hostility in Germany. People were shocked, actually, because when that, when that book, when I was still writing it, even before it was published and I lectured about it, people were just, people in Germany, Christian theologians were shocked because the director of this anti-Semitic propaganda institute, Walter Grunmann, who had been a professor at the University of Jena, had, had continued after the war as a very prominent theologian and scholar of the New Testament. His books were required reading for anyone who wanted to become a pastor, let alone a professor of theology, well into the 1990s. And nobody knew that he had been not just a Nazi, but really a, a vicious Nazi, a Nazi propagandist. 
No one knew that until I began my research about him. In That's more recent re- years, really people awful. are beginning to, to yeah. write about this and to take it more seriously. And now there are a couple of German books about it. Uh, and, and that's good. But there's also a tendency to say, well, that was then, this is now, you know. Um, yeah. I would say yeah. I, we need to take it more seriously than that. Absolutely. I also think historians <laughs> need to take the churches more seriously. Uh, there's a tendency, there are many historians who are simply themselves not religious, so they think religion is irrelevant, and it's not. And it wasn't yes. then, and it isn't today. It's not irrelevant. Right. I I think I think that's a very important point. We do get a skewed view of how things work because most of the researchers are entirely secular. So Yes. This has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Susanna. Oh, and thank you. Uh, sharing your really important work. I, I hope it gets a lot of attention. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate it and be well. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.